Hi, I'm Liana Downey, founder of Common Ground on Climate, and I think we can be having better conversations about Australia's future, conversations that bring us together to protect what we have. On this podcast, we're talking to a wide range of people to understand more about where we are, how we got here, and we're on the hunt for one big idea to safeguard Australia's environmental and economic future that we can Hi, I'm here today on. with so Heidi Lee. She's the Chief Executive Officer of Beyond Zero together. Emissions, and we'll talk a little bit more about who they are and what they do in a minute. Heidi's also an expert in sustainable buildings and urban design, and she brings 20 years of experience in creating sustainable cities to this role. And we'll talk more about that work as well. So Heidi, welcome. It's lovely to have you here on Common Ground on Climate. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to be here. I want to start with a question we ask everybody. If you could wave a magic wand, what would Australia look and feel like in 20 years' time? I, I like the, the question, but the premise, the waving a magic wand, we are rolling up our sleeves and we are making our vision for Australia happen. <laughs> so I think you're talking to me today in June 2021. This time last year, we had just launched what we called our Million Jobs Plan, which is our vision for how Australia could do an awful lot of work in the next five years, so that in 20 years' time, we have a zero emissions economy, we have a fair and equitable society, we have great jobs, and we have a really strong environment and we have a strong future. So I'm, I'm looking forward to sharing more with you about that today. But this is a, a topic very close to my, my heart and my everyday work. Thank you. I'm interested a little bit to know, too, you laid out those elements of zero emissions economy, great jobs, a strong environment and future for people who are not really thinking about what that might feel like, what would a zero emissions economy feel like? I think that there's some really tangible things that you will feel and, and see and hear in a zero emissions economy that are different to today. And I'm coming to you from lockdown Melbourne and the difference that you notice between a, a lockdown day and a non-lockdown day is the sound of the streets. So when we think about zero emissions technologies, one of them will be zero emissions transport. That'll be all electric which is really quiet. And so I know that at the moment we all depend on the sound of the, the truck coming down the street collecting bins to remember to run out and put our bin out. But you think about that morning activity in a zero emissions economy would actually be one where the truck is silent. You probably don't have waste. Everything that you uh, are using in your home would have another life. It would be very much about recovery you'll be able to hear the sounds of, of people talking, of nature outside your window in a way that at the moment, if you're living in a high-rise apartment or you're living in a, a really densely populated area, you really have to go out to the country to get that. So I think that there are some really tangible, like experiential things that you'll see and feel and hear in a zero emissions economy that we don't have right now, but we're actually getting this little taste through some of this really tough and big things we're doing now for, to prevent the spread of coronavirus. But some of these experiences, the positives, are the ones that I think we'll start to see as we decarbonise things like transport. Really interesting. And you talked about jobs and obviously you, you've mentioned the million 
jobs plan. What kinds of jobs are we talking about? So we took a close look at the the first five years because we're really interested in making sure that the transition that's going to happen, the transition that's already underway in in the global economy to move to zero emissions, we know that we need to change how we approach this transition in Australia if we want it to be positive for people, whether you live in the cities or the regions, we know that we need to change those things for it to be positive. When I look at what jobs are coming next, I'm really looking at the next five to 10 years. And that's where we've done most of our analysis and most of our work. I'm looking at construction jobs, first of all, a lot of construction jobs in things like renewable energy, in trades where we're going to retrofit and make our homes more energy efficient and make them all electric, ready for a zero emissions grid. We're looking Jobs in factories, jobs on production line, actually making the technology that we need for a clean economy. So that's making batteries, retrofitting buses and trucks. It might be outdoor construction jobs like building new bike lanes. So while we've got this immediate need in the next um, short term, the next five to 10 years to do a lot of that building, we can actually make our new economy one that has really safe and fair jobs um, in the long term as well. So we're looking at uh, the manufacturing sector. We, we think that we can re-industrialise Australia in clean and safe factories where we're using technology to help those factories be really great work environments, but also to make here in Australia the kinds of things that we need to have in a zero emissions economy. So that is, let's make those the bits of kit that we need for our energy system. Let's make wind turbines. Let's make batteries, grid scale batteries as well. Let's actually do that stuff here in Australia with our own materials, with our own minerals, so that we can actually capture the benefits that we currently just ship offshore. And you talked about the fact that we need to do things a little bit differently. Talk to me about how much we are doing that at the moment versus Who's making wind turbines at the moment? Are we doing that or where is that happening? At the moment, we're not um, deploying our renewable energy technology at a scale that warrants like developing a, a wind turbine industry in Australia. We do have some people, some companies already here. Vestas are already making uh, wind turbines, but it's a really precarious sector until we commit to actually transforming our energy network. So building a lot of wind farms in Australia and building them quickly, making that commitment will give confidence to companies who currently are shipping in components for their wind turbines. If we make the commitment to doing a lot of it, they'll have the confidence to set up and actually build those industries onshore And I said onshore, thinking, of course, one of the main opportunities that we haven't really taken up in Australia is building offshore wind as well. And those components, if we do enough of it, could also be made onshore here in our factories and in communities that are currently looking at a precarious future around the end of coal and the end of the fossil fuel industry. And are there other countries that are moving faster on this? Yeah, absolutely. I think about this firstly from a very top-down approach. We know that around half of the world's GDP is currently committed to net zero or in discussion to make that commitment. And Australia hasn't yet made that call. But there's a lot of stuff that we can get on and do regardless of where our governments are sitting. We, if we want to act at scale and we want to go fast, 
we do need alignment from uh, government and business and industry, investment and communities. We need this broad scale alignment and all to be pulling in the same direction. And we know it's important to go fast, partly because those global economies are moving and soon we won't have markets for things that we currently rely on being able to ship offshore, but also because this transformation of our economy, it can be great for us. And I think that's a conversation that we're not having enough. Yeah, I think that's right. One of the things we've been thinking about at Common Ground on Climate is this sense that these discussions have been set up. So it's either you're saving the environment or you're saving the economy, but you're really talking about a world in which both are possible. That's right. Last year, when we published the Million Jobs Plan, there was a short window of time where it was the largest clean economy recovery plan in the world. We showed 1.8 million jobs that could be delivered in five years. Um, they are job years. So that means that if, if you wanted to do the same plan over a shorter time, you would have the same number of job years, but you would be able to squish them in and have more people involved over a shorter number of years. But this approach, like that amount of jobs, it is hard to come by in any other sector. I spoke about the construction jobs opportunities, but those ongoing jobs are actually using building stuff, like doing the construction piece in sectors where we know there's a long-term future because there's a long-term uh, global trend for more zero emissions products and services. So if we do the construction now to set ourselves up to get access to those sectors and get access to those markets, we know we're making the best call that we can and the best investment that we can of our, our time and energy and our public funds. When they are applied, they need to be given to these sectors that provide long-term job opportunities for Australians. So one of the things that struck me as I was reading the jobs plan and asking that question, you talked about 1.8 million jobs. It's a lot of jobs. I was thinking about, well, how much would it cost and who's hiring them and how do you make it happen? Can you talk a little bit more about that? What's the investment that we're talking about and where does it come from? So for us, we had a few different criteria around the initiatives that we put forward in the Million Jobs Plan. And one, was, one of those key criteria was that these were sectors that had a long-term future, but also that they were sectors where private money, private capital had the strongest role to play. So we were looking for uh, opportunities to put a small amount of government financial um, support in place, but to do it in particular ways that meant that the private sector really wanted to access this, this strong private sector demand. So we looked at those building the renewable energy. We already know the private market um, doesn't need the same level of subsidy that it used to, to be able to do um, large amounts of build out of renewable energy. We looked at investing in transmission lines. When we looked at our building sector, that's almost half of the jobs in the million jobs plan. So in our home energy retrofits, that's retrofitting two and a half million homes and giving us an awful lot of jobs out of that. That there, to access those jobs, we've already got the trades and the skills, but we probably need to invest in education and, and training to make sure that the way that those homes are retrofit is always going to be done well and high quality. So you can actually build the capacity in the trade sector to always make better homes because we're going to invest in doing quite a lot of retrofits in a shorter period of time. Making sure that you invest in doing it well up front 
is really important. So you can start to build out not just that end result and get the two and a half million homes more energy efficient, but you can also make sure that the building sector is better equipped to make more efficient homes from that day on. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm interested in that question of retrofitting homes because I do remember a long time ago when I was working at McKinsey and we were looking at how much you could reduce greenhouse gas emissions and how much it would cost to do that. There were benefits but costs with retrofitting because obviously it's a lot easier to build a new building just the way you like it with insulation and double glazed windows and all of that good stuff. Much more expensive to go in and try to put insulation into an old home. And I guess that's why it hasn't happened to now. It's not that you don't get energy savings when you do that. You do. And and people who've gone through that experience also then have more comfortable homes. Obviously, it's warmer and cosier and cooler in summer and all those good things. Where does the funding come from the retrofit? Is that homeowners paying people to retrofit their homes or how do you see that working? So I think that one of the reasons that we haven't been able to engage in in broad scale retrofits of homes very effectively is because we don't have financial models in Australia that help us do this. One of the things that we looked at in the Million Jobs Plan was what we call a managed energy services contract. And that is a legal and financial mechanism that means your home gets made more efficient It gets made all electric um, and it gets renewable energy on it. You, as the the person living in the home, regardless of whether you own it or rent it or whatever, but you, you live in that home and you pay your utility bill the same way that you would otherwise, but the utility bill is including a portion of money that's going towards the cost of upgrading the home that you're living in. So a managed energy services agreement helps us shift the responsibility from the the homeowner alone and meaning that only those homeowners who want to and have the means to have efficient homes actually have them. And it, it means that we now have, with different types of financial models, more opportunities to be able to share the benefits and actually have better housing stock for everyone and great industry, obviously stimulating the the economy and the building sector quite a lot through the process, but it really is a legal and financial um, mechanism, paperwork holding us back from being able to get that. Yeah, that makes sense. My understanding is that Australia's doing a great job when it comes to putting solar panels on our roofs. We're doing it at a faster rate than any other country, but generally speaking, that's skewed towards wealthier households who can afford to do that, which means they're also the ones who are getting the reductions in their energy bills. So as you say, not very fair if you're in a financial situation where you can't cover the cost of putting in solar or putting in insulation in your home, but you would really stand to benefit from that. So this is a mechanism that you've proposed that would allow for a bit of cost sharing so that we could get over that kind of initial investment because there's a lot of savings to be had on the back end, but it it requires effort and money and work at the front end. And are there examples of other countries who have a mechanism like that? Have we seen that work elsewhere? That's right. So we were describing and we profiled a Dutch model, which we actually looked at the example of a Dutch company called Energiesprong and a project that they had done in the UK to retrofit social housing with 
energy efficiency technologies and actually just upgrade the building fabric. It makes a lot of sense in a cold climate, but because our homes in Australia are built so poorly to start with, by and large, they're not double glazed, they're not highly insulated, they're not draft sealed. So because our homes are so poor, we would actually get probably slightly better benefits out of the exact same approach as you do in the UK. So we profiled the Managed Energy Services Agreement in the book as part of the here is how you could actually deploy home energy retrofits at scale and do it well, but the benefits that we would get in Australia are pretty high. And what kind of traction have you had? Is that something that would need to be done at a state government level or is that something that you'd want to do federally? I think there's a strong role for the states and private sector in this initiative and we're continuing to to follow this thread through today with a number of other organisations that um, are interested in the same space. There are private companies at the moment that offer some really great opportunities in Australia for homeowners who can access finance to be able to upgrade their homes and, and get access to a nice package of all the things you would need to do to a regular home to make it more energy efficient. And you can basically attach that to your mortgage or you could attach that to your energy bill. So that's fine for a portion of the market. But for people outside of the DAT demographic, if you cannot leverage a loan and you don't have the private, the money yourself, you don't have the capital yourself, then we're working with a large group of other organisations to build out what does a solution look like for a huge number of people for whom the private finance is not an option. Okay, that's very interesting. And so we've talked a lot about retrofit, but there are other obviously big pieces to make this work. As you said, it is a big transition to really totally shift your economy. What are some of the other big levers like that, the big pieces that might make a big difference to Australia if we were to go down that path? Underpinning everything that we do and everything that we're proposing in the Million Jobs Plan is a massive build out of renewable energy, an upgrade of transmission lines, and establishing that battery manufacturing sector in the country. They're the the really big underpinning things that we absolutely have to do to make sure that Australia does come out a winner at the end of this global transition to zero emissions. We must do this and we must do it pretty fast. So the Million Jobs Plan, we looked at building out 90 gigawatts of renewable energy. That's quite a lot. It's a huge portion of what we currently have and currently use in Australia. 90 gigawatts is quite big. So we think you could build that out over five years in solar and in wind and be able to do that in places where the grid can also be upgraded at the same time to make sure that that renewable energy is actually reaching homes and cities and factories where it's needed to really make a difference. That has to be the underpinning assumption that we will actually build out renewable energy at scale and quickly enough to make sure that this shift to all electric and decarbonisation happens at the same time. This is important to sequence these things together so that we don't end up just increasing our demand for fossil fuels inadvertently. So talk about the transmission lines, because I've definitely heard people talk about that before. It's all well and good to build not just rooftop solar, but a big concentrated solar system where it's working a little bit like a coal-fired power plant and generating a whole lot of energy. But if you can't connect it into the grid neatly, then it's useless. What is required and how expensive and complicated is it 
And who's controlling that? I I don't think that this is complicated technology. I think most of what we need to be able to do a renewable energy electricity um, supply and and generation and, and transmission in Australia already exists. There are some really smart ways that we're going to need to manage and move electrons around. And I'm seeing uh, products come to market already that do that piece of work pretty well. We need a lot more of them to to get the job done to 100%, but they already exist. So this is really about planning it well and delivering this as a national vision. That really is the two principles that need to underpin this. The piece that we see as a a huge opportunity is to be able to do energy demand side, so very high energy use activities in factories and in manufacturing, and to do that very high energy use activity right near where you're generating that renewable energy. At the moment in Australia, most of our high energy users are connected to the gas network which means that we've got basically factories plugged in up and down any gas pipelines, right? With renewable energy, you can generate it anywhere that's sunny and windy. And with battery technology, you can provide the energy security along with that wind and solar that we know is really affordable at the moment. So this isn't about divorcing factories from the grid. It's actually about making clusters connected by bridges to high energy generation with battery storage and the capacity to use those clusters to turn off and on and to adjust the way that electrons are coming off and on those manufacturing islands so that it stabilises the grid overall. So this is a It's a really smart way that other countries already, so you see this in Germany, you see this in in Nordic countries where they're already developing really smart manufacturing clusters that are able to connect to the main grid, the one that powers our cities and all of our transport in this zero emissions future will be powered by this grid as well. Those factories and manufacturing clusters can be set up in a way that is a benefit and provides grid stability services to the main electricity network. And that's a a really exciting opportunity. And part of that planning that needs to happen up front in the transition to a zero emissions grid. And so are you suggesting that what we need to do is we need to relocate existing factories into clusters or is this about new factories that would be part of the manufacturing of some of the pieces we need to have a a zero carbon economy? Most manufacturing is already clustered. In, firstly, in regions, but also within your city planning um, laws, you, you basically zone your high energy users anyway. They're, they're often seen as dirty industry, and I can come back and chat to you about what I think factories of the future will look like. But the opportunity here is partly to recommission and deploy all electric technology into existing factories, but secondly, to do that in regions where you can cluster like a knowledge hub because you get a bunch of really smart manufacturing businesses together and that becomes a great place for new industries to deploy as well. What we're looking at there is the opportunity to do not just repowering existing manufacturing but also to stimulate the development of new industries in that space and doing them together with that renewable energy generation. That needs to be part of this equation. It's not just about having a all-electric factory, it's about making sure that the energy that goes there is renewable 
and is able to provide secure supply and meet the energy needs of that production service. But then together, the renewable energy and the factory can support the grid. So in short to medium term, it's about locating renewable energy sources close to those existing hubs. But then over time, if you're building new factories, making sure that they're connected into energy sources. And I mean, factories, as you said, have always done that. If a paper mill needs a lot of water, they're positioned next to a, a river. That's always been part of part of where factories sit. You said you could talk a lot more about what factories might look like in the future. This is one of my favourite topics. It um, was my link from being an architect and an urban designer into working at Beyond Zero Emissions full-time. And the bridge there was a a study tour I did in 2017, maybe 2018. It was pre-COVID, in that blur of life before COVID happened. (laughs) So I took a study tour to North America to look at cradle-to-cradle projects. And cradle-to-cradle is a design concept that means that there is like a circular economy, there is no grave for your product. So you have a product and they talk about that being like the cradle, you make something, you use it, you reuse it. And at the end of its life, it goes back into a same like virtuous cycle. So we call it today generally circular economy. Primarily people talk about recycling when they talk about circular economy, but cradle to cradle is a, and and actually a, a there's a more holistic interpretation of that circular economy, which is much more about designing for without obsolescence in mind. So I went on a study tour to look at cradle to cradle facilities and the most amazing place I went to was actually the Method Soapbox, which have you seen Method products? They're like they make soaps and detergents. Um, They make them very green. They have a lot carbon neutral certified. They've got a bunch of certifications, but their factory on the south side of Chicago is called the Soapbox. And it's a a factory that is built in a degraded wetlands in the Pullman district on the south side of Chicago. So quite a a low socioeconomic area. It's a place where they used to make trains, Pullman trains, hundreds of years ago. And this factory was built in a way that is quiet. There are no smokestacks. It actually has the world's largest greenhouse on its roof. It is built in this degraded wetland but by the time I visited like six or seven years into its operation the wetlands are rehabilitated because the the water coming out of the factory the wastewater is clean it is so clean that over the years it has cleaned and and restored the wetlands around it with clean water and and replenished the, the nature around the factory so this idea of a factory being something that is dirty and clean and needs its own space away from where you live, away from homes, away from parks. This factory turns that idea on its head. A factory can be a place that makes something that can not just be clean and and not bad to work in, like not unsafe, but it can actually be really beautiful. It can be a lovely place to work, like it is quiet inside. There's the noise of um, machinery, but it's not loud machinery. There's no need to wear earmuffs and they make these really fantastic, healthy products. So I looked at that as an example of this is a soap factory. Which can like it conjures up terrible images, the concept of a soap factory. But this is a really beautiful, clean, healthy place, great for the environment. And it's actually a good neighbour in your suburb as well. 
So I think that the concept of factories, what that means for us and designing our cities and where things can go and what is safe and what is desirable, we can really upend a whole lot of those assumptions that have come through from the 17th and 18th centuries when we look at what will our cities and factories be like in the future. That's fascinating. I can imagine people listening asking a bunch of questions off the back of that. Why aren't all factories like that? How expensive was it to build? And those are important questions, right? Obviously, it's more complicated, presumably, to design something like that. Much more complicated, more innovation, more technological sophistication required. But a, but a good outcome for everybody. Tell us more about why that's not happening more. So the reason that this isn't happening more often and, and faster is because until recently, it hasn't been cost effective to, to pursue this. So when I describe the method factory, absolutely, that is a world's first and it's expensive to innovate. So we need projects like that and companies like that willing to lead the way so that it can become more affordable to scale up the solutions that they found in that factory. And that's absolutely my experience from working on some of Australia's greenest buildings. Like I've done a lot of of feasibility studies and drawing and designing together, what will it take to make this hospital or this research facility or this public building net zero, carbon positive, achieve these great social and, and health outcomes? But doing a world's first is really hard. What we need to do is take those lessons from the projects that have already broken new ground from the method soapbox, what lessons can we take from that that we can roll out across all factories that are making soap or food and using that low-grade heat that they do. But there's going to be other innovation needed so that we can scale and deploy quickly the answers that are already on the table. So definitely not trying to say that's cheap, but the energy side of it is sorted now. So now we need to look at the demand side and deploying at scale the solutions that work already, that are efficient, that are smart, and that help us get these zero emissions economy happening faster. I guess I was asking a bit of a loaded question because my instinct was that having come from the corporate side, your job is one thing. It's to make profitable products. And of course, you're interested in communities and shareholders and stakeholders. But at the end of the day, if you've got two products and one is going to make you more profit than another, generally speaking, your job is to promote the one that's going to make more profit. And so I thought that you might say something about the fact that the costs are not being borne by those factories. So the reason we don't have more of that is because it's cheaper to be a polluter, not for society, but for that company, because in many cases we don't have a cost associated with that pollution. And obviously there are requirements. That was a big movement in the 70s where we said, no, you know what, you can't just dump your toxic waste into the river. You actually have to clean it up before you put it in. Big changes. But we still have companies where the regulation hasn't necessarily kept up. And I've talked to companies who've said, we would prefer to use the carbon neutral product, but at the moment, it's just so much cheaper for us to use the fossil fuel because there's no price on that, that greenhouse gas pollution. But you're making another really interesting point, which I hadn't thought about, which is that the innovation is expensive and it'll take time for that innovation to, to become more affordable. And I, I guess I also think about examples where 
when some of the times the rules change and then everyone has to innovate more quickly, you get this really rapid curve. So you think about when lead was taken out of cars, suddenly all the technology to have cars without lead became very standardised, but also there was a lot more innovation. The same when we stopped using CFCs or whatever, suddenly people got very good at the alternatives. So just a really different, a different way of looking at it. Now you talked a little bit about your background. We skipped straight into the Million Jobs Plan without really talking about who Beyond Zero Emissions is. Do you want to just give us a bit more context about who you are and why you exist? Yeah, absolutely. What do we have to be talking about a, a million jobs for Australia? <laughs> so, so Beyond Zero Emissions, uh, we're an independent think tank. So we're not connected to a university or to any industry. We create solutions across the economy for our highest emitting challenges. That is our purpose. That is why we exist. We are making the transition to an all renewable energy powered, clean technology future faster. And, and great for Australia. So when we talk about being a think tank, that means we do research, but the way that we do research is hand in hand with the stakeholders who are affected by the outcomes. When I talk about factories, that means that our factory work is done hand in hand with businesses that are at the moment looking at what does the future mean? What does a shift to a clean economy mean for them and their gas-fired furnaces and their dependence on high energy use. So we're interested in, in creating solutions that are not just uh, nice reports, but are also really practical, implementable solutions. We've been around for 10 years. And in that time, we've created plans to get each sector of the economy to zero emissions. We've done those national plans. So we've got a plan for energy sector, plan for buildings, transport, land use, manufacturing. What we're doing now and what we've done a lot of over the years is targeted visions and, and plans that address um, all of those sector solutions in one place. In 2019, we published what we call a 10 gigawatt vision for the Northern Territory. That project drew on energy, on buildings, on manufacturing, on transport, and created solutions that really fit the Northern Territory economy and the opportunities ahead. So that's the kind of stuff that we're doing at the moment on our current projects, which are branching out from the Million Jobs Plan and, and a couple of those chapters in buildings and in manufacturing and energy, and looking at how those solutions can be applied to places like the Hunter, places like Gladstone. And what kind of traction are you getting? You said you're working with communities to develop the plans, which is always a good way for people to feel more confident about those plans. What sort of traction or take up in the Northern Territory, for example? Yeah, we were able to see the recommendations that we made really take ground. We published the Northern Territory report in June 2019 and in that we made 10 recommendations about things that we could do to see the Northern Territory move to a clean economy but also build economic prosperity in its future. The recommendations that we made included things like having a plan for renewable energy to be an important part of the energy mix for the Northern Territory instead of what they were looking at at the time which was only our fossil fuel options so only a gas move. 
we have seen those recommendations be taken up by the government. And we actually saw the chair of the board of Beyond Zero Emissions appointed to the Te Territory Economic Reconstruction Commission last year when we were looking at COVID recovery options. So our chair was invited to be on that commission and to see through a whole lot of the ideas that were coming forward for how the Territory could recover from COVID as well. So it's been a, a really exciting uh, time, I think, for the Northern Territory, but also for us to see that there's a place where our recommendations are really coming to life. I'm sure people want to know, you talk about being an independent think tank, but where does your funding come from? So Beyond Zero Emissions are funded by primarily philanthropy and grants. So these are um, gifts. We've got deductible gift recipient status. So anyone listening along who likes the story, please do visit the website and donate. <laughs> You've got to say www.bze.org.au. So please do, because we live on your generosity. We are funded outside of commercial or contract arrangements primarily. We do small amounts of contract work <clears throat> in our non DGR status, but at the moment, around 90% of, of what we do is funded by philanthropic donations and grants. And do you get criticised as being too optimistic? You want it all to happen? What about the current economy? There must be criticism. Climate change is, as we know, very polarising in Australia. Yeah, we are extremely optimistic. We are extremely ambitious. The work that I do where I go out and work hand in hand with people who are actually affected by this show me that optimism is entirely grounded in the reality of what's possible and what the appetite is for people to make the shift. We actually find that the stories we tell about a clean economy and a, and a transition to all renewables, they're accessible because they're not about giving things up. We do research on where the opportunities lie and the opportunities are bigger when you move faster. What we have at BZE is this portfolio of reports and of projects where we are creating really big, very realistic opportunities that are here for the taking. If you wanted to do this, you could do it. So you start today and really have an, an amazing future in a very short time and that's something that I think is incredibly exciting but it's built on opportunity and it's built on real investment numbers real job numbers real technologies everything is available today we can just do it quite an attractive conversation to have one that people do want to have with us you've talked about a lot of different ideas different sectors different geographies if you had to pick one one big idea that all Australians could get behind, not to suggest that it would be the last thing you did, but the first thing you did, what would that be? What would be the one thing you'd be saying every Australian should be, you know, calling their MP and demanding that this happens or contributing to or investing in or what's your big idea? My big idea, our big idea, we need to get behind our manufacturing sector today. We need to support a sector that has been underfunded and not supported broadly for the last 20 years. And we need to turn this around because Australia has all the energy, all the minerals, all the skills and the, the smartest people. We've got everything that we need to be able to make what comes next for the world great for us. 
if we back our manufacturing sector, this is not just about us being able to offshore things faster and more efficiently. This is actually about us having fantastic communities and great jobs. But it needs to start because of the amount of work and the amount of building and making that we need to do to build the infrastructure for a clean economy. The first thing we need to do is to get our manufacturing sector decarbonised and on with the job. So invest in manufacturing so that we can be exporting so that we can be building here and exporting that technology for the new economy. Yep. Great. Thank you. Heidi, from my perspective, it's been a pleasure to hear what you and the team have been working on, some real optimism and energy and ideas. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for helping us build common ground on climate. If you have a big idea all Australians can get behind, know someone we should talk to or want to join a respectful and pragmatic conversation about our future, please check out our website, commongroundonclimate.org.